0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Tuesday, October 18th. How to achieve and then keep ballot access for all. Think about the arc of American history. Only white male property owners were allowed to vote at first. Eventually, we had the constitutional amendments and the Voting Rights Act that gave women and Americans of color the right to vote. We've expanded Election Day to include early voting, drop boxes, voting by mail for more people, and more. But there have always been the forces of reaction, too, obviously, working tirelessly to suppress the vote, especially these days, Republicans trying to make it harder for Democrats, and that usually means finding ways to make it harder for black people and other people of color. They found enough allies on the John Roberts Supreme Court to weaken the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County decision in 2013. Remember, that was called... Shelby County versus Holder. Holder was Obama's attorney general. And Southern states have been trying to capitalize on those new rights to deny voting rights in the almost decade since. Another challenge to what remains of the Voting Rights Act is before the court right now. And the phony claim of a stolen election is also being used as an excuse to limit voting in the name of preventing fraud. Our very special guest for this is Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones, covering voting rights. He's the author of the seminal book from 2015, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari, great to have you with us on the show again. Welcome back to WNYC.
0: Hey, Brian. Great to talk to you again. Thank you.
1: Can, can we start before we get to today's voter rights versus voter suppression struggles? Because we love to talk history when it applies. And you've got so much good history in your book. So can we start with a longer view on American history? I mentioned how at first only white male property owners could vote. How do you see the original rules and what began to give other people the ballot in the early days of the country?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Brian. American democracy was very exclusionary at the beginning. On the one hand, we had this lofty rhetoric in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. But when it came to designing who could and couldn't participate, almost all Americans were excluded from participation. Only white male property owners could vote at the beginning of the republic. That meant that in the first presidential election, only 6% of Americans cast ballots because White men who didn't own property couldn't vote. Women who were half the country couldn't vote. African Americans who were enslaved in most places were not able to vote. Native Americans weren't even considered citizens of the country. So we had from the very beginning of this country a democracy that was not a democracy for most Americans. And then it, it gradually expanded. It first expanded to give voting rights To white men who didn't own property. And then, of course, we saw a huge expansion after the Civil War, giving voting rights to black men. That right was expanded, but then it was severely constricted during the fall and after the fall of Reconstruction. And eventually women got the right to vote in nineteen twenty, but that was largely a right that was enjoyed by white women. So it really wasn't until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five that all Americans finally got the right to vote, regardless of race, gender, color, etc. So that's about, I don't know, 250 years of American history in yeah, about a, in a minute,
1: minute and a half. That's pretty good. Well take us one Layered deeper on a piece of that. Because after the Civil War, as you said, the 15th Amendment, which was ratified in 1870, gave black men the right to vote. No women had the right to vote until 1920, 19th Amendment, but the 15th Amendment in 1870. And yet, we do usually talk about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 as really enfranchising black Americans. We don't see the 15th Amendment in 1870 as that much of a milestone anymore. So remind us, what did the Voting Rights Act of 1965 actually change on paper and in the real world?
0: Well, it's kind of amazing, Brian, because basically, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed to enforce the protections of the 15th Amendment of 1870. So you essentially, a hundred years later, had to pass an entirely new law to enforce a constitutional amendment that had not been enforced throughout the Jim Crow South. Because what happened was, even though the 15th Amendment said that the right to vote should not be denied based on race or color, the right to vote was denied based on race or color throughout the Jim Crow South after Reconstruction ended. And the way that happened was that things like literacy tests and poll taxes were passed in places like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, et cetera. They were, on the face of it, race neutral, right? They didn't say, we're going to disenfranchise All African-Americans based on the wordings of the statutes. But in practice, that's what they did. That's what happened in the segregated South through things like poll taxes and literacy tests and grandfather clauses. And by the way, a lot of those things were also adopted in the North in places like New York City, which also had literacy tests up until the 1960s. So what the Voting Rights Act did was it struck down all of those suppressive devices, the literacy tests, the poll taxes, et cetera. Uh, In the states, the longest histories of discrimination, which was largely in the South, but not exclusively the Voting Rights Act, a lot of people don't remember, applied to three counties in New York City when it was passed in 1965, who also had poll taxes and literacy tests on the books. And then what it did is it sent the federal government to the South to actually be able to enforce the law. First, to register black voters who had not been able to register for decades, and then it over a longer period of time, what the Voting Rights Act did is it required those states with the longest histories of discrimination, largely in the South, but also parts of the West and other parts of the country, to have to approve their voting changes with the federal government so that if you struck down one literacy test, they wouldn't just pass a new one that would have the same Effect or the same uh, impact or outcome of trying to disenfranchise black voters or other voters of color. So, in
1: 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. 65, as we just said, the Voting Rights Act, and three years later, Richard Nixon was elected president of the United States in no, in no small measure as a backlash to those laws. And when talking about the Supreme Court, you know, we focus so much these days on the fact that Trump got to appoint three justices out of the current nine. We forget that Richard Nixon got to appoint four. So what were the implications of that for voting rights?
0: It began what became a major shift on the court. I mean, Nixon appointed some very conservative justices like William Rehnquist. He also appointed some relatively moderate justices. Remember, John Paul Stevens was a Nixon appointee. So it wasn't necessarily the same kind of conservative counter-revolution that you would later see with the justices that were appointed by trump but certainly what nixon did is he shifted the warren court which was a court that protected all sorts of rights, not just voting rights, but really led to a revolution in the law in terms of protecting rights for previously disadvantaged, disadvantaged, marginalized communities, and that began to shift the court to the right, and it shifted steadily to the right. It it went from being the Burger Court, that's who was Chief Justice uh, under Nixon, to then becoming the Rehnquist Court uh, in the uh, in the subsequent years, Reagan, Bush one, etc., and then that became the Roberts court, And now I guess it's technically still the Roberts Court, but really what it is, it's the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, uh, Barrett Court, because they they are in control in terms of the majority now. And so the Supreme Court since the Nixon era has moved steadily to the right. And as it's moved steadily to the right, it's become increasingly hostile to things like the Voting Rights Act. You could always count on the Supreme Court, even under Nixon, to largely be supportive of the Voting Rights Act. That's no longer the case, and that really changed with first the the justices that George W. Bush appointed, John Roberts and Sam Alito, and then certainly it's become much more hostile to voting rights with uh, adding Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett.
1: And I should say, Chief Justice John Roberts does not come off well in your book, including his role before he was on the court, As an assistant to the attorney general in the Reagan administration, when Roberts was only in his 20s, he helped lead the charge against some voting rights codifications back then in the 1980s, although they lost. But can you tell that story a little bit?
0: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that John Roberts has become the moderate on the current Supreme Court because he was really a foot soldier in the Reagan revolution when it came to trying to restrict voting rights. Parts of the Voting Rights Act were due to expire in the early 1980s, and there also was a Supreme Court case that had weakened the Voting Rights Act. And there was a big fight between the Reagan administration and the Congress over how to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act and how strong to make the law once it was reauthorized. And Roberts really led the issue as a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department. He was tasked with taking a very hard-line position on the Voting Rights Act. In his words, he wrote that violations of the Voting Rights Act should not be made too easy to prove. He said it would, it would turn the, the country into a uh, basically make the right to vote a racial entitlement, uh, things like that. And he wrote upwards of 25 memos arguing against a strong reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And Roberts actually lost that fight. And one of the reasons he lost that fight is because you had Republicans in the Congress, like Senator Bob Dole of Kansas, who stood up to protect voting rights and actually took on Ronald Reagan in the Republican administration. So there was a very strong bipartisan majority in Congress for the Voting Rights Act. But I think what happened is Roberts lost that fight in the Reagan administration, but then he took up that fight When he joined the Supreme Court and he was joined by the other justices, the other conservative justices on the Supreme Court. And it was Roberts who basically 30 something years later wrote the decision in Shelby County versus Holder that gutted the heart of the Voting Rights Act. So I think you can absolutely draw a line from the activism of a young John Roberts in the 1980s against the Voting Rights Act, and then the work of Chief Justice John Roberts gutting the Voting Rights Act in 2013, and then in the subsequent decisions that have weakened the Voting Rights Act since then.
1: Let's talk about where some of our current ways of expanding the vote come from. Early voting, drop boxes, voting by mail. We also have voter registration at motor vehicles bureaus in lots of places. That's relatively new. How recent is anything that detached voting from just one election day and waiting at your local polling place or that put voter registration in front of people as a choice more easily?
0: It's been a steady expansion of voting rights. There hasn't really been one moment. The biggest change was the 1993 National Voter Registration Act, which was the first real major piece of voting rights legislation that was passed uh, since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that, as you said, allowed people to register to vote at uh, motor vehicle offices and other uh, public agencies. That was really important because what, what was happening is after the Voting Rights Act, a lot of people got registered immediately, but then it started to become difficult to register again, that you would have to register only at the county courthouse, for example, uh, and registration deadlines would be very sweeping. You had to re-register before elections. And so the National Voter Registration Act of 1993 was meant to make voter registration as easy and, and as accessible as possible. A lot of people registered to vote as a result of that. Now we kind of take for granted that you can register to vote at the other places. But then it also became clear that we were moving away From just voting on one day in November, on one Tuesday in November. And the reason why we vote on a Tuesday in November is because that's why farmers used to bring their crops to the market in the eighteen hundreds. And so It's a pretty antiquated system right now. We're no no longer primarily agrarian society where people are basing trips to the market uh, on a Tuesday in November. And so uh, states began to think about how can we make voting more convenient? And they had different ideas. Some states said... We need to give people more time to vote. Uh, We have to uh, make it so that people have a week of early voting or two weeks of early voting, or we have to make it so that people have different options to vote, that we want to make it so that people can vote by mail. Um, That was something that was primarily done out West, but then spread to more places. Some states said uh, that, registration deadlines were too burdensome. So they, they had the ability to register at the polls on election day, what was known as election day registration. Um, so it was different states experimenting with things. And I think what happened was people started realizing the more options that you give people, the more convenient it is. And so more states became open at looking at early voting or looking at expanding voter registration or adopting mail voting, although obviously that really exploded during the pandemic. But the interesting thing is, Brian, before 2020, a lot of these things were far more bipartisan than they are now. Republicans supported early voting in a lot of states. Places like Florida helped pioneer early voting. Uh, A lot of Republicans supported vote by mail in Western states, uh, whether it was Arizona or Washington State or Oregon. Um, So a lot of Republicans supported things like Election Day registration in Minnesota and in Wisconsin, states that have had those things since the 1970s. So really, it's only been in the last decade that the the whole – question of how we vote and the voting laws have become so partisan and so politicized.
1: So is it fair to say that that's where the current battle lives? Like how much to expand access versus how much to roll back those recent expansions?
0: Well, I think there's, there's two real battles. The first over is access to the polls, whether we should expand access to the ballot or restrict access to the ballot. And the second battle, of course, is over how we should treat elections, whether we should certify elections or not. And that is really, really new. That was really something that we had not discussed in this country very much at all uh, until the 2020 election. There had been times, of course, 2000 election in Florida, where the election had been incredibly close and there was lots of litigation and the courts ultimately decided it. That has happened before in our history. But just the idea that one candidate would lose, claim the election was stolen, then have his side try to overthrow the election, which is what Trump did in 2020, that was really unprecedented. Whereas the battles over ballot access, those have existed for a long time, but they've intensified in recent years.
1: And Michael calling from Puerto Rico. You're on WNYC. Hello from New York, Michael. No, thank you. Um, I wanted to mention um, and actually provoke the the gentleman from Mother Jones to talk about how the full implementation of the Voting Rights Act was never uh, realized in in American territories. I just wanted to bring in that unique perspective. Ari, you got that?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think that there's this larger question of the rights of citizenship in places Uh, like Puerto Rico uh, and the odd distinction of do they or do they not have the protection of uh, US laws and also I know it's a complicated question in places uh, like Puerto Rico, but the whole question of statehood uh, and the fact also that because Puerto Rico uh, is not a formal state, it does not have protections under the Voting Rights Act that it would have if it was a state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are people, I don't wanna speak for for Puerto Ricans because I know this is a a divided issue down there, but there are obviously people that would like for um, Puerto Rico to become a state and to have representation in the Congress and then to be able to enjoy the benefits of things like the Voting Rights Act because right now the Congress skews more heavily white, more heavily rural, but in particular the Senate skews much more heavily white and heavily rural than it would if Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico would become U.S. states.
1: How did Republicans come to focus so much on voter fraud, including mostly exaggerations of the threat of voter fraud as a way to suppress the vote? This well predates Donald Trump's campaigns, right?
0: Yeah, I would argue the real turning point was the election of Barack Obama, the first black president who inspired this huge coalition, not just of black voters, but of young voters, voters of color more broadly. And that was viewed as the coalition of the ascendant. And I think Republicans saw the writing on the wall and they saw the demographics of the country changing and they saw the election of things like the first black president. And they said, if we don't change something, We're going to be a perpetual minority party. And so one of the things they tried to change was the country's voting laws in the states that they controlled, in particular after the 2010 election, they were in a position to control all of these key states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. And in short order, they began changing voting laws to try to make it harder for democratic constituencies to be able to vote. So this effort does predate Trump. It predates Trump by about a decade. But it definitely accelerated under Donald Trump, and the Republican Party became far more anti-democratic under Trump than it was before. I would argue that the voter suppression elements of the Republican Party were relatively fringe elements before Trump. Um, Now they are front and center with Trump. uh, And I think that the Republican Party was radicalizing against democracy before Trump. I think that's one reason why Trump became president in the first place. But the anti-democratic transformation of the Republican Party dramatically accelerated under Trump and became concerned with not just making it harder to vote, but actually trying to overturn elections. And that that combination of the two, voter suppression on the front end and then voter suppression on the back end, mm. that's what's so chilling about this moment in American history
1: right now. Yeah. And tomorrow we will focus explicitly on what may be the biggest threat right now, which is the way that... Um, vote counting and election certification is coming under attack. But last question, as we look to the possibility of continue to continuing to expand voting rights in this country, because I think we've established in this conversation that it's really going in both directions. There's the voter suppression push, but there's also the voter expansion push that has given us early voting, drop boxes, mail-in voting, same-day registration, Motor Vehicles Bureau registration, all those things we talked about. So my last question is, how else would you like to see ballot access expanded? Some countries have mandatory voting, right? We discuss universal mail-in access as a current debate. There's the prospect of online voting, but concerns about hacking by Russia and whoever else um, keep that. Under the surface for now, maybe rightfully so. What would the frontiers to push ballot access be for you now at the top of your list?
0: Well, I think it would be just to make voting as convenient as possible and to give people as many options as possible so to take the things that are working well in different states and try to put them in as many states as possible. And whether that's a combination of making it easy to vote by mail, but also making it easy to vote in person, but also making it easy to register to vote and then making sure that well, while we do that, that there's a reasonable safeguard so people feel like their votes are going to be counted uh, and then certified. I think what's really missing here, Brian, though, is that all of the actions at the state level, and that we don't have any new federal protections for voting rights. And I think that there are a lot of good things in the voting rights bills that the Congress considered in the last session, both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And I think the failure by Democrats, particularly because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema not to support changes to the filibuster, the failure to pass voting rights legislation I think is going to have a real big impact on the election system, particularly if some of these election deniers are elected in 2022, because I think Democrats had a very unique moment in American history when the right to vote was under assault to protect voting rights in the same way that there was a moment in 1965 to protect voting rights. They failed to seize that moment. And so now we're really becoming two Americas where when it comes to democracy, where some states are moving in a direction to expand voting rights. Some states are moving in in a direction to restrict voting rights. And my fear is that that's going to continue without the federal government stepping in to make sure that every American has the equal right to vote, no matter of what state they live in and no matter who's elected in their states.
1: Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones Magazine covering voting rights, He's the author of the seminal book from 2015, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Very important conversation. Ari, thank you so much for coming on today.
0: Thanks so much, Brian. Great to talk to you as always.
1: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC Radio. 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.